I love to participate in food challenges. Um, I've got a t-shirt still from Barley's Pub um, from when I was in college for eating an entire 20-inch pizza by myself. Uh, I survived the spiciest hot wings of my life at the uh, City Tavern in Culver, Indiana. But the one challenge that I still to this day regret backing down from was a four-pound hamburger uh, at a restaurant down in Florida while I was on vacation. And the reason that I balked was not only did this place have a wall of fame uh, for the pictures of those who finished the burger and fries and milkshake in under an hour, but they also had a wall, wall of shame for those who failed, who attempted and failed to uh, finish. So you got your picture taken either way, and you were going on one of the two walls. And, and so the threat of being immortalized as a failure was enough to dissuade me from even attempting. And this morning, as we continue to work our way through our sermon series, Tough Texts, we're down now to the four most difficult passages in the entire Bible, including today's story of Jephthah's vow from Judges chapter 11. And as we read it together, I want you to consider with me the overarching question we've been asking all the way through all of these texts together these past two months, which is, why is this story in the Bible? If Scripture really is God-breathed, if it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16, then how are we supposed to learn and grow from Judges chapter 11, verses 29 through 40. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bibles and you want to begin to turn there, if you would stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word, and I'll read it for us from the ESV translation. It'll be on the screen in your front if you don't have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to let that be an additional gift to you this morning. We've got extras at the info bar for you. But hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return home in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Manith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth. Now the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, 
that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. And then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do not know what to do with a story like this left on our own. God, we need your guidance this morning. Holy Spirit, just as you inspired these words to be penned thousands of years ago, recorded for all time in Scripture, God, we need you to so inspire our interpretation of your word this morning, our understanding of your word, our application of your word. We want to be not just hearers of your word, but doers, as James exhorts us. And so, Father, would you come now and be with us, be amongst us. Holy Spirit, would you stir hearts as, as we've already prayed, Scott prayed for us. Would you draw us to you? Your word tells us none of us chooses you. We must be chosen. We need to be drawn this morning. Would you do a supernatural work and draw us to yourself? Would you transform dead hearts and make them beat? God, I'm particularly challenged by this text. I feel the weight of it, having just confessed in my sermon last week, my love for my own only daughter. I feel the weight of this text. It's horror. And yet, we trust this morning that it's here for a reason, that you have good plans and purposes for including it in your word, and so we submit ourselves under your word's authority now. Would you use it as the living, sharp, active, convicting, encouraging, uplifting agent that it is for our edification? Would you do this for your glory? Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So why is this text so tough? Well, we have outlined four reasons in our studies here that a passage of Scripture can be tricky. I want to suggest that this passage checks all four of the boxes. Many of us question its relevance. What does a story about child sacrifice have to do with me today? And make no mistake, friends, that's what is going on in this story. Some interpreters have gone to great lengths to try and soften this story. I think the text is really clear. This is human sacrifice. She was sacrificed as a burnt offering. And so how do I preach a text like that? How do you apply a text like this in your daily life? You know, this passage seems inconsistent with what we find elsewhere in Scripture. I thought God abhorred human sacrifice 
you might say. And as soon as we do grasp the story's meaning and its importance, we begin to realize how personally convicting it is for us as well. The, thir- the uh, take-home principles that I want to give you this morning, the application points from this sermon, ought to thoroughly challenge you. And finally, it's potentially theologically problematic. Does God condone child sacrifice? That's what's at stake in this passage this morning. And I think it's clear that God does not condone Jephthah's vow or his subsequent fulfilling of that vow, as I want to show you. I think it's clear that this passage is consistent with what we know of God's character from the rest of his word. And finally, this passage is vitally relevant insofar as it serves as a giant picture on the biblical wall of shame to dissuade you and I from ever following in Jephthah's footsteps. In fact, I find nine, count them nine, different ways in which Jephthah serves as a negative example for us of what not to do. Nine don'ts arising out of the text in your bulletin. Are you ready? Don't number one, don't minimize your persistence sin. Some readers get tripped up here in verse 29 at the start where we hear the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and then the very next verse, verse 30, he utters his infamous vow, but I want you to notice two things. First of all, a lot of time passes between the first half of verse 29 and verse 30. We hear Jephthah passed through Gilead and Manasseh to Mizpah on to the Ammonites, maybe weeks. And so the purpose of Jephthah's being filled with the Spirit of the Lord was to lead him into battle against the Ammonites, not to inspire this rash vow in verse 30. But second and more important, please realize that the presence of the Spirit of the Lord does not insulate you from the ever-present threat of sin that always lurks in your heart. The lingering sin that remains in the heart of every fallen human this side of eternity. What's true of Jephthah here, and this story is true of all of us who have repented and trusted in Christ for our salvation and thus been sealed with his promised Holy Spirit until our faith becomes sight. The spirit of the living God of the universe now lives inside you, if that's your story. That's amazing. That is great news that God lives in you and so does sin. Paul wrestles with his own persistent sin in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so we need a right theology of sin this morning, friends. For those of us who have truly repented and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, God has dealt with the penalty of our sin instantaneously upon your conversion. So you can kind of follow my somewhat convoluted diagram here, but hopefully, hopefully helpful, give you a big picture 
understanding of this. God deals with the penalty of our sin instantaneously upon our conversion. 1 Peter 2.24, Christ bore the penalty of our sins and his body on the cross. And from the very moment of your salvation, you are now no longer standing under God's righteous wrath and condemnation of your sin. But from the hour you first believed, as the song goes, 2 Corinthians 5.21, now when God looks at you, he sees you as clothed in all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is most important. That is the gospel. The good news that sinners like you and me, otherwise separated from a holy, perfect God, can be reconciled back into right relationship with God the Father simply by virtue of our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us, his atoning sacrifice in our place on the cross. That's good news. But the good news gets even better. Because Jesus didn't just die to save you from the penalty of your sin. He rose to give you power over that sin as well. Romans 6, Paul says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We were buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so now... If you're a Christian, you can, and you will, necessarily, you will spend the rest of your remaining 10, 30, 50, however many years God gives you, remaining on this earth, post-conversion, being progressively freed from the power of sin, the grip that it holds on your heart. We call that sanctification in the church. 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ We're becoming more like Jesus little by little every day. The one who knew no sin from one degree of glory to another. It's a gradual, progressive process for the rest of your days on this earth. Sanctification. And how is it accomplished? Paul says, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. It is God's indwelling Holy Spirit now living in your heart, gradually transforming your heart. What once was a heart of stone calcified by years and years of perpetual sin now being renewed and transformed into a heart of flesh. And the good news gets even better than that because God not only promises to deal with the penalty of your sin, not just the power of your sin, but he promised to free you one day from the very presence of sin when you finally see him face to face in paradise. Where Revelation 21 says there will be no crying, nor pain, nor death, because those are the effects of sin. And verse 27 of Revelation 21, nothing unclean will ever enter heaven. There is no sin in heaven. That is good news. Anybody else ready to go home? Praise God that that is our blessed hope and future. But we can't forget it is not our present reality. So we don't fool ourselves into believing that God's indwelling spirit or his abundant grace excuses or insulates you from your sin in the here and now. It's still there lurking in your heart. And so we are called to hate our sin, Romans 12, 9. 
We are called to kill it. Colossians 3.5. Put it to death. This is God's will for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Your sanctification. Take your sin out back and put it out of its misery and grow in Christ-likeness. This is the Lord's will for us. Don't, number two, don't misuse your words. Verses 30 and 31. I think one of the simplest lessons we need to learn from this story of Jephthah is the danger of foot and mouth disease. Jephthah is a speak first, think later kind of guy. Kenneth Way exposits, Jephthah's words here are manipulative, confused, ignorant, judgmental, and possibly dishonest. This story is a sobering reminder about the power of our words. And based on the, the masculine Hebrew pronoun Jephthah uses and the fact that the typical four-room house of this period contained a room for animals, Jephthah is likely expected a sheep or a goat to come out and greet him when he makes this vow. And, but we'll come back later to why he would make such a, a bizarre, risky, rash vow at all in point number four. But for now, let's just... Let's just get an appreciation, again, for his picture on the wall warning us against misusing our words. Scripture is so clear on this point. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Forget sticks and stones will break my bones. Death and life are in your words. And so we are commanded in James 1, 19 to be quick to hear, slow to speak. We are warned in James 3 how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness setting on fire the entire course of life and set itself on fire by hell. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in his image. Jephthah certainly curses his own daughter here by failing to think through and weigh, carefully weigh his words. But before we rush to condemn and judge him and point fingers, let's look in the mirror this morning. James told us that no human being has tamed the tongue. Has anyone here in this room not said something in the past week they didn't wish they could take back? Show of hands. We sing songs and we bless our Lord and Father with our tongues on Sundays and then we turn around and curse, slander, and gossip, malign, impugn, insult, otherwise tear down fellow made in the image of God people throughout the rest of the week. Either to their face or worse, behind their back. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. Is that true of anyone this past week? Anyone speak no corrosive words this week? Exclusively edifying, uplifting, grace-giving words. I think sometimes the hardest people to do that with is those closest to us, isn't it? 
I mean, whether we speak to them in that way because we know that they'll take it. Anyone else not married to you would break your jaw or just walk away from the relationship if you talk to them that way, but she's stuck with you for better or for worse. Or because simply we, we just wear on one another's nerves. We grate on each other over years and years. But the reason is immaterial. We've got an epidemic on our hands of self-professing Christians hurting one another with their words in our homes, our churches today. And I'm not so naive as to think this is not a West Hills problem. Listen, I know it is. Because I'm part of the problem. And for years, I did it myself, to my wife, to those closest to me. And I've heard some of y'all heard the way you talk to your spouses, to your kids, and I think, man, if she talks to him like that in front of the pastor, what's it like when they get home behind closed doors? Brother, sister, I want to challenge you this week, exhort you to speak nothing but good of your spouse, of your children, of your parents, of your boss, of your annoying co-workers to carefully weigh your words and use them only to build up and to give grace this week. I'm not encouraging you to lie. They're not perfect. But if you've got a problem with someone, Scripture exhorts us to go to them in love and seek to be reconciled. Your passive-aggressive, backhanded jabs are no good for anyone. They are a destructive fire from the pit of hell. Don't, number three, don't overlook God's grace. We read in verses 32 and 33, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. The Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel, and so God gave them victory not because of Jephthah's vow, but in spite of it. Now, how do I know that? The text is kind of vague. You could try and connect dots that aren't there and say, well, God you know, blessed Jephthah's vow and gave him victory. How do we know that's not what happened? It was in spite of, not because of. Because 1 John 1.5 reminds us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So God has no part, takes no part in sin. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is being tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so there's no doubt that Jephthah's vow here, and especially his enacting of it, was evil. And it's interesting, you know, we expect from elsewhere in Scripture to hear that when God accepts an offering, We'll hear that it arose as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. But here in Judges 11, God's silence is deafening. He does not accept Jephthah's vow or his sacrifice. He abhors it. We know that from Deuteronomy 12.31. God makes clear in his law. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, in the way that the pagan nations do. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their own sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Throughout the Old Testament, God 
clearly, consistently treats child sacrifice as the most abhorrent of all sins. And yet, in spite of Jephthah's careless and detestable oath, in his undeserved mercy, God resolves to spare the nation of Israel anyway. And someone might ask, well, why didn't God just let them lose the battle if he knew that Jephthah was going to follow through on his pledge and spare the life of one person for the sake of thousands, at the expense of thousands, possibly his entire chosen people? That would not have been gracious of God. Again, James 1, do not blame God for Jephthah's sin. God is gracious in this passage. Jephthah is sinful. And likewise, friends, we cannot overlook God's grace in our own lives. We need to hear the gospel this morning, prophesied back in Psalm 103, verse 10. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. That is such good news. We need to hear especially God's just fulfillment of that promise in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 of the New Testament. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's how God can remain perfectly just and perfectly merciful. Because in Christ, God poured out his righteous wrath against sin and justifies us freely by our faith in him. We've got to remind ourselves and joyfully celebrate that gospel truth daily. The good news that we don't get what we deserve, that's good news for sinners like you and, for, and me. Praise God that like Jephthah, in spite of our sin, God has delivered us, he's rescued us, he's bailed us out, and he pours out his undeserved favor on you and me time and time again. That though our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. This is grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And we can't miss it in this passage. Don't forget it in your life. Point number four, don't presume you call the shots. That is what Jephthah is trying to do here. That is why he makes this vow. Uh, Lawson Younger, Old Testament commentator, explains, Jephthah is negotiating with Yahweh as he had with the Gileadite leaders and with the king of Ammon earlier in chapter 11. He's seeking to acquire concessions and favors from God as he had from others in the past. It is an attempt to exert control over God, a practice that was familiar to pagans who believed in the manipulation of the gods for human purposes. So that's what Jephthah is doing here. Pagan practice of if I mix just the right sacrifice, I can get God to do what I want. And in so doing, Jephthah turns what should have been a story about God's salvation and victory into a tragedy where God's gracious deliverance gets overshadowed by nine verses focused on Jephthah's tragic vow. And friends, that is exactly what we do when you and I assert ourselves and our desires and our will over against God's. When we presume to call the shots, to be in charge, when we use God 
We use him like some sort of magic rabbit foot or talisman to get what we want instead of surrendering to God's leading and following him, letting God be God, then we rob him of the glory that is due his name, the glory that he created us to give him, Isaiah 43, 7. You and I need to hear this as much today as Jephthah did all those years ago, that God is not your vending machine or you put in a couple prayers and press the right buttons and get what you want. If that is what your prayer life is devolved into, you need to go back to the book. We are called to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Matthew 6.10 To pray, not my will, but yours be done, Father. Luke 22.42 That is how Jesus prayed. Even Jesus wasn't so presumptuous as to try and call the shots. He submitted to the Father. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you in humility, who is in charge? You or God? Who's in charge? May we not treat God merely as a means to our own ends. For starters, because he won't allow it. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so we know that God's will will be done. So you and I are better off trusting him because he is way better at being God than you and I are anyway. I mean, do you know that this morning? Do you know that you make a pathetic God? You're really not that good at running your own life? God is. He is sovereign. He is good. He is trustworthy. Trust him to be in control. Let go and let God. He wants to do it. He will do it. That's the good news. You can trust him and let him do it. Number five, don't blame others for your mistakes. Don't blame others for your mistakes. Jephthah exclaims in verse 35, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have brought me very low. And you have become the cause of great trouble to me. It's not bad enough that he has doomed her to a gruesome, premature death. Now he is blaming her for it. And we can trace the roots of this kind of blame shifting all the way back to the very origins of sin in the garden. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve did when God showed up and starts asking questions in Genesis 3? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what's this that you've done? And the woman said, your turn. Take two. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam says, it's her fault. And kind of yours too, God. Eve says, it's the serpent's fault. Paul exhorts us in Galatians 6, let each one test his own work for each will have to bear his own load. Take responsibility for your actions, friends. We need to hear this one more today than ever before, probably. Everybody today wants to blame somebody else. It's my parents' fault, the way I am. It's my boss's fault, my, the, my employee's fault. It's President Trump's fault, Nancy Pelosi's fault. It's the media's fault, culture's fault, public education's fault, 
the church's fault, my spouse's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Meanwhile, God says, why don't you worry about yourself and let me worry about everybody else? Don't worry. Romans 14, 12. I'm going to hold everybody accountable for their actions. I'll, I'll get to them. But guess what? I'm holding you accountable for your actions too. And trust me, you've got plenty of your own to worry about <laughs> without, without having to worry about anybody else. So quit blaming everybody else and just take responsibility for the little bit that you can control, the little domain I give you, and let me handle the rest. Number six, don't run from your past. Don't run from your past. We don't have time, unfortunately, for an in-depth uh, character analysis of Jephthah. But Lawson Younger summarizes for us, Jephthah came from a dysfunctional background. He was an illegitimate son, born of a prostitute, rejected and disinherited by his family, a leader of a gang. He became a man who was hurt, angry, bitter, ambition-driven, ready to fight, manipulative, ignorant of God's law, abusive of his daughter, lacking boundaries, contentious, emotionally reactionary, revengeful, and doing what was right in his own eyes for his own gain. And that's all just in chapter 11. He is a rich, complex person, historical person. And I think we get a glimpse here in verses 36 through 38 of how his personal defects trickle down, you know, the effects of generational sin relationally into his family dysfunctions as well. I think it's pretty telling that his daughter's reaction is, leave me alone for two months. I guess I wouldn't want anything to do with a father who was planning to kill me either, would you? But Jephthah was reacting out of his woundedness over his own broken past. What kind of a guy has such little regard for others, for human life, for his own daughter, his own family, that he would make such a ridiculous, horrific vow, a bastard stepson who was cast out of his home by his own family in verse 2, who surrounds himself with worthless fellows in verse 3 so he doesn't have to actually care about people worth caring about, and risk getting hurt again. The kind of guy who refuses to deal with his past and therefore dooms himself to repeat it. He dooms his future to be dictated by his past. Vicious cycle. Jephthah lives the rest of his life, we hear in verse 9, seeking revenge. And in his anger and his insecurity, his irrational, vengeful ambition, Jephthah exemplifies for us a sad but critical psychological principle. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. People who have been hurt and who don't deal with their hurts who don't work through them and learn to accept and forgive and heal and move on, will always, inevitably, perpetuate that vicious cycle and hurt other people. And so I ask you this morning, in love, friends, what are you running from? Are you running? Are you, are you trying to sweep something from your own past under the proverbial rug 
but it's continuing to affect your life in more ways than you'd like to admit and probably in more ways than you even realize. Listen, we've all got baggage. Can we just drop the perfect West County facade for a moment this morning? It is not a question of whether or not you have issues. You do. It's, whether, it's what they are and what are you doing with them. What are you doing with them? Come talk to Taylor, our church counselor. Come talk to me. I'm free. This is, this is, you're not going to get a better rate in town. This is what I'm here for. I'm not just a preacher. I'm a pastor. I'm a shepherd. I care about you. I love you. I'm here to listen to you, to support you, to pray with you. But whoever you talk with and however you work through your junk, don't run from it. Because you cannot outrun your past. Point number seven, don't be ignorant of God and his word. Jephthah ironically and tragically confuses Israel's God, the true God, Yahweh, with Chemosh, the God of the same Ammonites that he's trying to defeat. And thus, he ignores God's clear disgust toward human sacrifice, Deuteronomy 12.31. But a faithful student of God's law would have also known that God provided in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, for the redemption of vows made too hastily. That's the saddest part about all of this. Not only is his original vow unnecessary and undesired by God in the first place, but its execution was avoidable as well. For a mere 10 shekels, Jephthah could have redeemed his vow and saved his daughter's life. We hear a story in 1 Samuel 14 of the army of the Israelites doing that for Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, after King Saul rashly made a vow and Jonathan ate honey and Saul was going to kill him. And Go read it. But here's the point. Here's the point. Christians must take note that accurate knowledge of God through Scripture is essential for life and growth, that ignorance can lead to death and disaster, and that perseverance in theology will save both yourself and your hearers. Do yourself a favor, maybe take a picture of this slide, and go home this afternoon and look up all these references, Deuteronomy 8, chapter 30, Psalm 1, Proverbs 8, Matthew 4, all these really, really vital references in God's Word, to just how important it is to know God's word. To know his heart as revealed to us through his word. Let these, let these passages from his word motivate a deeper hunger and thirst in you for a deeper relationship with knowledge of God as he has revealed himself to us graciously in his word. His will is not so difficult to discern. What is God's will? What is God's will? Read his word, and he will reveal it in his word. Point number eight, don't underestimate God's redemption. Verse 40. I want to know the craziest part about this whole story with Jephthah is that not only does God 
give us a glimpse of his redemptive purpose in verse 40 where we hear of the, the daughters of Israel lamenting the daughter of Jephthah four days each year. Again, Jephthah serves as a picture on the wall to all of Israel for thousands of years after this. Let's don't ever make Jephthah's mistakes again. And so God uses this, this negative example to save who knows how many lives, child sacrifice after this. But, but beyond that, did you know that Jephthah also makes it into the New Testament? Book of Hebrews, chapter 11, chapter we call the Hall of Faith sometimes, the Faith Hall of Fame. We hear, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice and obtained promises. Jephthah gets a pat on the back in the New Testament, not for killing his daughter, but for saving the nation of Israel in spite of his sinfulness. Friends, that is redemption. Redemption is God taking the very worst of us and and transforming it and using it for his best that we can't outsin God's ability to take something we meant for bad and turn it into good Genesis 50:20 we serve a God who refuses to let us be defined by our worst deeds we serve a God who sent Christ so that when he looks at us now, he doesn't see the wall of shame. He sees the wall of fame. That is good news. Praise God for redemption, that I cannot out God's grace and mercy, forgiveness and redemption. And finally, point number nine. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point here. Jesus makes a really radical claim in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 27, on the road to Emmaus with two of his followers. He made it in John, Gospel of John 5.39 as well, that all of the Old Testament points to him. All of it. Jephthah points to Jesus. Say, how? I mean, where is Jesus in this story? This horrific story. Friends, don't miss the point. This story is here, yes, to warn us about how we use our words, yes, to warn us about the importance of knowing God's word, all the other seven, eight reasons that we just looked at. But ultimately, most importantly, this story is here. And Judges 11, to point you and me to the better only child who was sacrificed by a better father to fulfill a better vow for a better purpose. This story is a shadow, a prefiguring of a better story to come. Because Jephthah's sacrifice accomplished nothing It was careless, manipulative, 
ignorant, and totally avoidable. But it points us to a sacrifice that was coming, that was necessary, that was selfless, that was eternally costly and yet eternally rewarding. A sacrifice that accomplished everything for you and for me.